Let me tell you a story, podcast number 43. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We'll begin this podcast with Steve reading poems for you, some that he's written and some by Eugene Shea. I'm going to start with this one called Beatnik at Heart. It's by Eugene Shea. I met this guy, he was 50 and more, when he came to work at our shop. His hair was so long it lay on his shoulder, but with a big bald spot on top. In time, I got to know him pretty well, and he seemed to be a likable chap. I asked him why he didn't cut his hair and hide his baldness under a cap. He sat looking at the floor for a while. I was afraid I'd injured his feelings. Looked up. If you have time for a story, I'll tell you the tale of my dealings. I was born with congenital heart trouble. With the years, my problem grew worse. By the time that I turned 42, I was one step ahead of the hearse. In another town, in another state, lived a young man that I never knew, a member of a protest group, party to things I'd never do. Only one ear he needed to hear, the other one served as his spare. I doubt he could hear with either ear due to the length of his hair. He carried an organ donor's card in case he should run out of luck, survived the protests without a scar to later lose a joust with a truck. Today I'm wearing that lad's heart and his long hair didn't hurt it a bit. I'm alive today because he is dead. How far in debt to a man can you get? I say my long hair is my sackcloth of sorrow for my benefactor's tragic part. I'm alive today by the graces of God, and I will admit I'm a beatnik at heart. This one I wrote, it's called Serpent. I'm here, Eve, for your heart to gladden. This news will be so hard to fathom. To you, girl, God lied. Trust me as your guide. Said she, I don't know you from Adam. And this one I call Cypher. A man with a gift to encode ate beans, then began to explode. Releasing the pressure, he was rather clever. He passed SOS in Morse code. This is called Back Home and it's by Eugene Shea. We spent the last night in a motel. The movers were packed up and gone. Last remnants remnants of residents in our van were off to Arizona with the dawn. But we linger long over restaurant coffee before we admit to a shared desire to see the old homestead one more time before leaving for a life of retired There is a strange power of magnetism a home radiates with the passage of years, creates doubts in the wisdom of leaving, though our heads disregard such fears. The old house looks abandoned and sad with the curtains and draperies gone, like sad eyes staring and asking, what in the world has gone wrong? 
grass needs mowed for it's now spring, and the lilacs are starting to bloom. Perhaps their boughs of bright color will help dispel the sad house gloom. Doors, front and back, locked tight. We've given the realtor the keys. New owners will be moving in soon. We are free to roam where we please. For 33 years we lived here. They were the best years of our lives. Three kids and their pets raised here. Now only the memories survive. We're carefree in the land of sunshine. Never more will I shovel that snow. But a part of us still lives on Jade Street in a white frame house where lilacs grow. All right, another one I called natural. Herb ate all natural food without pauses. "'Twas in spite of his critics' guffaws, "'though he gulped supplements far beyond common sense. "'Still, he died of all natural causes. "'This one I called paper. "'He brings all her needs from the warehouse, "'pens, paper, and all in between. "'He never considers the lady, "'though he is the man of her reams. "'And this one... Uh, Well, let's just say it may be in tune with the times (laughs) in this political season. I call it fertilizer. A politician gave a speech in one old farmer's barn and said the things they always say, that same old worn-out yarn. As people slid out one by one, he didn't seem to heed the message they were sending him, just blabbed about how he'd lead. When all the folks had gone and bailed from off those rough straw bales, the livestock turned their rears toward him and lifted up their tails. The orger that plopped to the floor among the hay and straw had more worth than the contents of that politician's blah. Chapter 10 of Winds of Wyoming begins with the heroine, Kate Nielsen, feeding a bison calf. Kate tightened her grip on the oversized bottle. Thank God her hands were feeling better. She grinned at the calf. You have quite the suction power, little girl. We weren't sure you'd get the hang of it. The calf grunted, but it didn't let go or shift its gaze from Kate's face. She thought about how much her animal-loving friend Amy would enjoy Trudy. She'd phoned Amy and Aunt Mary the night before. They were both so pleased with her description of ranch life. She couldn't bring herself to mention the confrontations with Ramsey. Besides, as far as she knew, he was in jail. A shadow fell across the corral. She looked up. The Hispanic teen was eyeing her, an uncertain expression on his face. Hi, she said. I'm Kate. What's your name? Manuel. Manuel Ortega. The youth placed his elbows on the top rail. What's in the bottle? Cow's milk? Mrs. D says this is goat milk, Kate said, which is better for bison calves than beef cow milk. Once a day, we add liquid vitamins and minerals, plus a raw egg. Wow, it's hard to believe goat milk is better than cow's milk for a buffalo calf. His accent was barely discernible. When my dad, who's a sheep herder, nurses orphan lambs, he sometimes uses goat milk. But I'm surprised it works for bison. Surprised me, too. Trudy acted a little disappointed at first, and she wasn't sure what to do with a rubber nipple. 
but now she loves it. He wrinkled his nose. Trudy? Is that the calf's name? Clint walked up to lean next to Manuel on the top railing. Kate was glad to see him treat the boy kindly, even though others ignored him. He elbowed Manuel. Can you imagine how humiliated that calf will be when the herd finds out she's named Trudy? Manuel laughed. Kate put her hand on her waist. She has to have a name. Maybe, but it should be something rugged and tough. This is a ranch, you know. This is a female bison, you know. We can't call her John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. Right, Manuel? The youth raised his hands. I'm staying out of this one. Clint placed one boot on the bottom rail. How's the calf doing? She eats constantly. Kate grabbed a rag from her back pocket and dabbed at the milk that dribbled down the calf's chin. Hungry all the time. But Laura says it's normal for buffalo calves to nurse frequently. He slapped the railing. I don't believe what I just saw. You're spoiling her. I am not. If Trudy's mother were alive, I'm sure she'd lick her chin for her. Clint rolled his eyes and turned to Manuel. How much you want to bet Miss Trudy will be wearing a bib by tomorrow morning? The calf released the nipple with a loud pop, and Kate fell backward into the straw. Clint jumped the railing to help her to her feet. The calf leaped away, grunting and bawling. Kate crouched, holding her hands out to the frightened calf. It's okay, baby. Come to Mama. Clint snickered. Mama? You're way too pretty to be a bison, Mama. He opened the corral gate. See you later. Embarrassed, Kate pulled the calf close. I was a real mama once, before I aborted my baby. She blinked. Where did that come from? She'd never before thought of herself as a mother or the fetus as a baby. She looked at Manuel. Do you think Trudy should have a different name? But he was watching Tricia and Bethany stroll toward them. He turned away. Better get busy. He disappeared around the side of the barn. Kate stood as the girls came closer. Hi, Tricia. Good morning, Bethany. Hey, Kate. Tricia waved at Trudy through the railing. We came to see the baby buffalo. He's so cute. Kate laughed. Mike says she's a she. I named her Trudy. Bethany smiled her approval. That's a great name. Can we pet her? Kate opened the gate for the girls. She'd have to tell Clint at least one person liked the name. Sure. Come on in. But move slowly. She's skittish. Trudy peeked at them from behind Kate's legs. What a silly buffalo. Trisha held her hand out for the calf to sniff. Trudy stretched her neck toward Trisha, wiggling her nose and sniffing until Tramp, who'd run up to the corral and slipped between the rails, barked. The bison gave a little grunt and a hop and trotted toward the dog. Trisha laughed. Upstaged by a dog. The three humans stepped out of the corral. Trudy lowered her head as if to butt Tramp. Tramp sat on his haunches and barked again. The calf sprang back. They raced round and round the corral, Tramp yipping and Trudy grunting, until the calf wheeled to face the dog, her head lowered. Then they started the routine all over, sending dust and straw particles into the air. Kate sneezed. Bless you, three voices chorused the blessing, one of them male. Kate's heart soared when Mike appeared next to her. How's the nursemaid this morning? She couldn't help but notice how his half-grin creased his cheek. 
Doing good, she motioned toward the frolicking animals. We're enjoying the show. Yeah, those two sure like playing together, but I need to cut short the fun. He wrapped the railing. Tramp, time to go. The dog glanced at Mike, but didn't stop chasing his playmate. Mike called his name again. This time he added one more word. Doghouse. Tail between his legs, Tramp turned his back on the disappointed calf and crept out of the corral. Kate laughed. I take it Tramp hasn't forgotten his time in the kennel. Bethany leaned on the railing. Did your dog do something bad? Tramp sat down beside his master, his tongue lolling from the side of his mouth. Mike patted his dog's head. Good boy. He straightened. Tramp tangled with another calf. I'll tell you about it sometime. Right now I have to go get set up for branding. Kate snickered. That's what he told me, too. Someday we might hear the story. Better get going. I'll see you ladies later. He winked at Kate and aimed for the barn, tramp at his side. Kate watched them go. Clint was fun, but Mike was the one who... She couldn't contain the grin. He was the one who made her heart flutter like a flag in a flurry, as Aunt Mary would say. Ooh, Kate. Trisha gave her a knowing look. I saw that wink. She felt her face flush. He's a nice guy. Bethany chimed in. Yeah, real nice guy, especially to... Trisha interrupted. Speaking of guys, we saw you talking to Manuel. You better be careful. He's like, bad news. Kate looked from Trisha to Bethany. Is there something I should know? Trisha glanced around. Let's go sit in the gazebo. It's more private. Bethany led the way to the gazebo. We can't forget we're supposed to help fix lunch today, Trish. Kate followed. I'm on lunch duty, too. They treaded the narrow path through the newly plowed garden to the redwood-stained shelter in the center. Kate inhaled the scent of warm earth. Mrs. D had asked the three of them to plant a vegetable garden in a few days. She couldn't wait. The girls sat on one side of the built-in bench that matched the curve of the rounded structure. Kate laid the bottle and rag on the bench and sat across from them. So what's the deal with Manuel? How can we help him? Tricia snorted. Help a loser? He's going to end up in the pen. Kate pressed her hands against her thighs to stem her rising anger. That may be the opinion of some. That's precisely why I went to help him. Everyone, especially losers, needs encouragement. Oh, how well she knew. Whatever. Trisha turned to Bethany. Go ahead, Beth. You tell Kate about Manuel. Then we'll see how much she wants to encourage him. Bethany shrugged. Kate can do whatever she wants. She crossed her legs. The short version is that last summer, Manuel and some other guys we go to school with were out in the flats, drinking and partying and driving crazy in pickups and ATVs. They topped a hill and surprised a herd of antelope which took off running, so they chased them. But one antelope was injured or sick and couldn't run fast. Trisha interrupted again. In case you didn't know, the only animals that run faster than pronghorn antelope are cheetahs. I don't know how fast cheetahs run, but I've heard antelope can run like 70 miles an hour. Bethany flipped her blonde hair behind her shoulders. The way they run is cool to watch. They do a hopping kind of thing. My dad says it's called pronking. Anyway, the injured one couldn't keep up. Manuel, who was really drunk by then, decided to chase it with an ATV. 
He trailed it for a long way. Nobody could say for sure how far. Kate sighed, reminded of the idiotic things she'd done while high. Bethany took a breath. Finally, the antelope stumbled and fell, but Manuel didn't stop. He drove over it, then turned around and did it again and again and again. The other guys said blood and guts and fur flew everywhere, covering the ATV and Manuel with gore. I guess there wasn't much left of the antelope by the time he was done. Kate thought of the beautiful stately creatures she'd seen grazing in the meadows and felt sick. What a creep, Tricia narrowed her eyelids. I get so mad every time I think about it. Bethany's face had paled and her voice wavered, but she continued. Manuel's family doesn't have much money, so the court appointed my dad, who's an attorney, to defend him. He tried hard to help Manuel, but the evidence and the witnesses were all against him. Plus, he didn't have anything to say for himself. What could he say? Trisha pounded the bench seat. He was obviously guilty. Kate frowned. Was it a setup? Dad tried to prove it was a setup, but the judge found him guilty and sent him to reform school in Warland. What happened to the other boys? Were any of them prosecuted? They got charged with DUIs and defacing public land, but they didn't get sent to the boys' school. Bethany brushed a bug off the bench. They're so wild. They'll probably end up there one of these days anyway. Kate glanced at her watch. I don't want to make us late for kitchen duty, but I have a question before we go. The girl stood. Manuel has been punished for his crime. Why do people treat him like he has leprosy? Bethany lifted her chin. Because he's a criminal. He committed a single crime and he paid the penalty, did his time. Has he continued to commit crimes? Well, not that we know of. So, he's no longer a criminal. And neither was she. But, but what? Trisha curled a strand of hair around her finger. He's a Mexican. What does that have to do with anything? My grandpa says you can't trust a spick. You believe that? Bethany checked her watch. We better go. Kate stood, blocking their exit from the gazebo. Though she was not normally an in-your-face person, their indifferent attitudes troubled her. Your skin is almost as dark as Manuel's, Tricia. Should I distrust you? The girl averted her gaze. That's different. I'm part Italian. Where I come from, some people would call you a wop which is just as bad as calling a Mexican person a spick. She picked up the bottle and rag. I don't mean to lecture. I just hope you'll give Manuel a chance. He needs friends, just like you and I need friends. Whistling a nameless tune, Mike loaded his pickup with supplies from the barn. Seeing Kate always put him in a good mood. She'd had a tough life, yet she had a ready smile. A beautiful smile. He tossed a saddle into the bed of the truck and was about to head back into the barn when he saw Tara strutting toward him. He grunted. Why didn't the woman find someone else to pester? She leaned against the pickup, one hand on her hip. What were you grinning about? He maneuvered the saddle toward the front of the bed. The biggest mistake, well, the second biggest mistake, he'd ever made in his life was going steady with her for a month when he was a junior and she was a sophomore in high school. 
She'd been on his case ever since. For the life of him, he couldn't remember what he saw in her, other than her body. Appalled at the notion he'd been governed by more by hormones than good sense back then, he braced himself for whatever nonsense was on her mind today. What brings you over to the WP today? She jutted out her hip and batted her false eyelashes. I ask you a question first. I forget. What was it? He picked up the branding equipment from the ground and tossed it into the bed with a noisy, noisy clatter. I asked you what you were grinning about. Oh, that was a real question. He thought for a moment. I don't remember. Whatever was on my mind, I suppose. He took a quick look around. Funny how everyone disappeared when Tara Hughes came on the scene. What's your answer to my question? What am I up to? Let's see. About five foot five and a hundred. You know what I mean. She pouted. You don't want to know my measurements? Elbows locked, Mike gripped the tailgate and clamped his teeth together to keep from shouting at her to get off his property. With a melodramatic drop of her shoulders, Tara sighed, but then she perked up. I suppose my more desirable features are obvious. She shifted her weight to the other hip. He turned toward the barn. I've got work to do. Tara scampered around the pickup to clutch his arm. Actually, I have a serious answer to your question. He looked down at her, fighting the urge to knock her hand off his arm. The sooner he heard her out, the sooner she'd leave. She looked both ways and lowered her voice. We should go someplace private. He tipped his head to avoid her smoker's breath. How about you tell me here and now? Well, she took a big breath. We've needed to have a heart-to-heart talk for some time, Mikey. Her eyes were wide and adoring. You and I should take a weekend, get out of town, and sort through some stuff. I know an intimate little place. Kate watched Bethany and Tricia exit the garden before she headed for the barn to rinse the bottle. The normally chatty girls were silent. Had she been too hard on them? She passed the corral where Trudy was curled on a mound of hay, fast asleep. Questions pummeled her brain. Were her expectations reasonable? Did she expect the people she'd harmed to forgive and forget her misdeeds the way she expected the locals to forgive and forget Manuel's failures? She snapped the rag to flick off a fly. Was there a way she could help the boy move beyond his past and his reputation? She rounded the corner of the barn in spite of faded blue dented fender. Her breath caught in her throat. Old Blue's owner couldn't be far away. Two more steps, and she saw him standing on the far side of the truck, his face hidden by the brim of his hat. Head tilted, he appeared to be listening intently to the female who clung to his arm. A glimpse of the backside of the woman's close-fitting pants told her all she needed to know. Kate turned away. She'd almost convinced herself Mike was as interested in her as she was in him. But that was obviously not the case. She took another step right into the path of a barn cat with a wiggling mouse hanging from its teeth. The cat snarled, its feral stare smoldering with a ferocity that stopped her in her tracks. Tramp bounded around the corner and the cat vanished behind the woodpile. Kate hurried into the barn. She'd learned on the street not to mess with other women's men, especially women like Tara. 
She didn't want her precious Michael any more than she wanted the cat's half-dead mouse. Whoa, Mike yanked his arm away. I don't know where you're going to go on with this weekend talk, but you've got the wrong guy. I have nothing to... Tara straightened her hands on her hips. Oh, yes, you do, Michael Duncan. Among other things, you hired a dangerous employee. That, combined with poor buffalo management, will ruin this two-bit guest ranch of yours if you're not careful. Clouds blocked the sun and cooled the air. He glanced at the murky, roiling sky, which mirrored the fury building inside his chest. Our employees and bison and whatever else goes on at this ranch are none of your stinking business. Oh, yes, they are. I've tried to tell you, but you haven't listened. I won't put up with your bison obsession or with the way you fence them in once we're married. They're an embarrassment to the community and to the state of Wyoming. He knew he should address the marriage issue, but he couldn't help but defend his herd. That's ridiculous. There's a buffalo on the state flag. Daddy says buffalo should roam free. Stop right there, he raised a hand. I don't care what your father says, and I've told you before, we are not getting married. Oh, Mikey, don't tease me, she grabbed his arm again. You may not be ready now, but someday you'll see how right we are for each other. Just think, what a fabulous spread the two of us will have when we combine our 75,000 acres with your little dude ranch. He pried her fingers off his arm and stepped back, fists clenched. Tara's eyelashes fluttered over wide eyes. My pager is vibrating. Gotta go. She scurried away, her high heels fleeing clumps of dirt behind her. Mike threw the remaining equipment into the back of the pickup, opened the truck's passenger door, and whistled a short, shrill summons for Tramp, who leaped from the shady side of the barn onto the seat of the cab. After closing the door, Mike squirmed around his dog to reach the driver's side. Desperate to distance himself from the scent of Tara's perfume, he sped through the ranch grounds and onto the highway. The air felt thick and smelled like rain. He studied the storm clouds rolling above him. The dark mass looked as gloomy and nasty as he felt. He wanted to drive all day, just ride the highway, listening to mournful country music and thinking about how much he missed his dad and his brother. If they were around, they'd tell him how to deal with Tara. But he knew he couldn't stay away from the ranch long. He had a long list of chores to conquer before the first guests arrived on the weekend. And he was supposed to meet Rusty and Clint down at the cattle pasture after lunch. Tramp hung out the window, nose into the wind, tongue and jowls flapping. Oh, for such a simple, carefree life, a world without Tara Hughes. She was a worse nutcase now than she was in high school. He rubbed his jaw. And what did she mean about the bison and some employee ruining his ranch? He wanted to ask his mom who she thought the supposed dangerous employee might be, but she was so busy. Besides, she got upset every time Tara stepped foot onto the ranch. She'd never voiced her concern, but he had a feeling she was afraid he'd end up with a deranged woman just because there weren't many other women his age in the area. He expelled a long breath and slowed for a coyote that loped across the road. Tramp barked at his distant relative until it was out of sight. Mike thought of Kate's ready smile in her hair that shone in the sunshine. Now there was a woman who was easy on the eyes and on the mind. He pulled off the highway, checked the tra- for traffic, and made a U-turn. Two huge raindrops pelted the windshield. With the driver's side window broken and the passenger window down, he and Tramp would both be soaked before they got back to the ranch. But that was okay. 
The soil needed the moisture, and the smell of wet dog hair would overpower Tara's perfume. He lifted his index finger off the top of the steering wheel to greet an oncoming motorist. He should get to know Kate better. Maybe take her to the uh, chuck wagon supper at the Bar K, or over to a movie in Laramie. Or maybe a picnic at his favorite spot on the canyon rim. Kate dropped onto the sofa, removed her boots, and stretched out. Thank God Manuel volunteered to help her care for the hungry calf. She was exhausted. She closed her eyes and listened to the sound of rain on the roof. She longed for sleep, but all she could think about was seeing Tara cozy up to Mike. The telephone rang. She crawled off the couch and stumbled into the chair. Hello? Hey, baby. Kate sucked in a breath. How did... I keep telling you, sweetheart, I have. She slammed the phone down. Almost instantly it rang again and continued to ring until she unclipped the cord and yanked it from the wall. She collapsed into the chair, wishing there was a way to know without asking the authorities or Tara if Ramsey was in or out of jail. She slipped off her socks. Might as well take a bath. No way could she rest after that call. Stepping into the bathroom, she twisted the clawfoot bathtub's handles to Max and was unbuttoning her shirt when she felt the hair on her arms stand at attention. Someone was in the cabin. But how could Ramsey call her phone and be in her cabin at the same time? Here's Chapter 4 of Treasure Island. The Sea Chest I lost no time, of course, in telling my mother all that I knew, and perhaps should have told her long before. And we saw ourselves at once in a difficult and dangerous position. Some of the man's money, if he had any, was certainly due to us, but it was not likely that our captain's shipmates, above all the two specimens seen by me, Black Dog and the Blind Beggar, would be inclined to give up their booty in payment of the dead man's debts. The captain's order to mount at once and ride for Dr. Livesey would have left my mother alone and unprotected, which was not to be thought of. Indeed, it seemed impossible for either of us to remain much longer in the house. The fall of coals in the kitchen grate, the very ticking of the clock, filled us with alarms. The neighborhood, to our ears, seemed haunted by approaching footsteps, and what between the dead body of the captain and the parlor floor, uh, on the parlor floor, and the thought of that detestable blind beggar hovering near at hand and ready to return, there were moments when, as the saying goes, I jumped in my skin for terror. Something must speedily be resolved upon, and it occurred to us at last to go forth together and seek help in the neighboring hamlet. No sooner said than done, bareheaded as we were, we ran out at once in the gathering evening and the frosty fog. The hamlet lay not many hundred yards away, though out of view on the other side of the next cove, and what greatly encouraged me it was in an opposite direction from that whence the blind man had made his appearance and whether he had presumably returned. We were not many minutes on the road, though we sometimes stopped to lay hold of each other and hearken. But there was no unusual sound, nothing but the low wash of the ripple and the croaking of the inmates of the wood. 
It was already candlelight when we reached the hamlet, and I shall never forget how much I was cheered to see the yellow shine in the doors and windows, but that, as it proved, was the best of the help we were likely to get in that quarter. For, you would have thought men would have been ashamed of themselves, no soul would consent to return with us to the Admiral Benbow. The more we told of our troubles, the more, man, woman, and child, they clung to the shelter of their houses. The name of Captain Flint, though it was strange to me, was well enough known to some there and carried a great weight of terror. Some of the men who had been to field work on the far side of the Admiral Benbow remembered, besides, to have seen several strangers on the road and taking them to be smugglers, to have bolted away. And one at least had seen a little lugger in what we called Kit's Hole. For that matter, anyone who was a comrade of the captain's was enough to frighten them to death. And the short and the long of the matter was that while we could get several who were willing enough to ride to Dr. Livesey's, which lay in another direction, not one would help us to defend the inn. They say cowardice is infectious, but then argument is, on the other hand, a great emboldener. And so when each had said his say, my mother made them a speech. She would not, she declared, lose money that belonged to her fatherless boy. If none of the rest of the you dare, she said, Jim and I dare, back we will go the way we came, and small thanks to you big, hulking, chicken-hearted men. We'll have that chest open if we die for it. And I'll thank you for that bag, Mrs. Crossley, to bring back our lawful money in. Of course, I said I would go with my mother. And of course, they all cried out at our foolhardiness. But even then, not a man would go along with us. All they would do was to give me a loaded pistol lest we were attacked, and to promise to have horses ready settled in case we were pursued on our return, while one lad was to ride forward to the doctors in search of armed assistance. My heart was beating finely when we two set forth in this cold night upon this dangerous venture. A full moon was beginning to rise and peered redly through the upper edges of the fog, and this increased our haste, for it was plain before we came forth again, that all would be as bright as day, and our departure exposed to the eyes of any watchers. We slipped along the hedges, noiseless and swift, nor did we see or hear anything to increase our terrors, till, to our relief, the door of the Admiral Benbow had closed behind us. I slipped the bolt at once, and we stood and panted for a moment in the dark, alone in the house with the dead captain's body. Then my mother got a candle in the bar, and holding each other's hands, we advanced into the parlor. He lay as we had left him, on his back with his eyes open and one arm stretched out. Draw down the blind, Jim, whispered my mother. They might come and watch outside. And now, said she when I had done so, we have to get the key off that. And who's to touch it, I should like to know and she gave a kind of sob as she said the words. I went down on my knees at once. On the floor, close to his hand, there was a little round of paper, blackened on the one side, 
I could not doubt that this was the black spot. And taking it up, I found written on the other side in a very good, clear hand, this short message. You have till ten tonight. He had till ten, mother, said I. And just as I said it, our old clock began striking. This sudden noise startled us, shockingly. But the news was good, for it was only six. Now, Jim, she said, that key... I felt in his pockets, one after another, a few small coins, a thimble, some thread and big needles, a piece of pigtail tobacco bitten away at the end, his gully with a crooked handle, a pocket compass, and a tinderbox were all that they contained, and I began to despair. Perhaps it's round his neck, suggested Mother. Overcoming a strong repugnance, I tore open his shirt at the neck, and there, sure enough, hanging to a bit of terry string, which I cut with his own gully, we found the key. At this triumph, we were filled with hope and hurried upstairs without delay to the little room where he had slept so long, and where his box had stood since the day of his arrival. It was like any other seaman's chest on the outside, the initial B burned on the top of it with a hot iron, and the corner somewhat smashed and broken, as by long, rough usage. "'Give me the key,' said my mother, and though the lock was very stiff, she had turned it and thrown back the lid in a twinkling. A strong smell of tobacco and tar rose from the interior, but nothing was to be seen on the top except a suit of very good clothes, carefully brushed and folded, They had never been worn, my mother said. Under that, the miscellany began. A quadrant, a tin canican, several sticks of tobacco, two brace of very handsome pistols, a piece of bar silver, an old Spanish watch, and some other trinkets of little value and mostly of foreign make, a pair of compasses mounted with brass, and five or six curious West Indian shells. I have often wondered since why he should have carried about these shells with him in his wandering, guilty, and hunted life. In the meantime, we had found nothing of any value but the silver and the trinkets, and neither of these were in our way. Underneath, there was an old boat cloak, whitened with sea salt on many a harbor bar. My mother pulled it up with impatience, and there lay before us the last things in the chest, a bundle tied up in oilcloth and looking like papers and a canvas bag that gave forth at a touch the jingle of gold. I'll show these rogues that I'm an honest woman, said my mother. I'll have my dues and not a farthing over. Hold Mrs. Crosley's bag. And she began to count over the amount of the captain's score from the sailor's bag into the one that I was holding. It was a long, difficult business, for the coins were of all countries and sizes, doubloons and Louis d'ors and guineas and pieces of eight, and I know not what besides, all shaken together at random. The guineas, too, were about the scarcest, and it was with these only that my mother knew how to make her count. When we were about halfway through, 
I suddenly put my hand upon her arm, for I had heard in the silent frosty air a sound that brought my heart into my mouth, the tap-tapping of the blind man's stick upon the frozen road. It drew nearer and nearer while we sat holding our breath. Then it struck sharp on the end door, and then we could hear the handle being turned and the bolt rattling as the wretched being tried to enter. And then there was a long time of silence both within and without. At last the tapping recommenced, and to our indescribable joy and gratitude died slowly away again until it ceased to be heard. Mother, said I, take the hole and let's be going, for I was sure the Boltadora must have seemed suspicious and would bring the whole hornet's nest about our ears. Though how thankful I was that I had bolted it, none could tell who had never met that terrible blind man. But my mother, frightened as she was, would not consent to take a fraction more than what was due to her, and was obstinately unwilling to be content with less. I was not yet seven, she said, by a long way. She knew her rights, and she would have them, and she was still arguing with me when a little low whistle sounded a good way off upon the hill. That was enough, and more than enough for both of us. I'll take what I have, she said, jumping to her feet. And I'll take this to square the count, said I, picking up the oilskin packet. Next moment we were both groping downstairs, leaving the candle by the empty chest, and the next we had opened the door and were in full retreat. We had not started a moment too soon. The fog was rapidly dispersing. Already the moon shone quite clear on the high ground on either side, and it was only in the exact bottom of the dell and round the tavern door that a thin veil still hung unbroken to conceal the first steps of our escape. Far less than halfway to the hamlet, very little beyond the bottom of the hill, we must come forth into the moonlight. Nor was this all, for the sound of several footsteps running came already to our ears, and as we looked back in their direction, a light tossing to and fro, and still rapidly advancing, showed that one of the newcomers carried a lantern. "'My dear,' said my mother suddenly, "'take the money and run on. I am going to faint.' This was certainly the end for both of us, I thought. How I cursed the cowardice of the neighbors. How I blamed my poor mother for her honesty and her greed. For her past foolhardiness and present weakness. We were just at the little bridge, by good fortune, and I helped her, tottering as she was, to the edge of the bank, where, sure enough, she gave a sigh and fell on my shoulder. I do not know how I found the strength to do it at all, and I am afraid it was roughly done, but I managed to drag her down the bank and a little way under the arch. Farther I could not move her, for the bridge was too low to let me do more than crawl below it. So there we had to stay, my mother almost entirely exposed, and both of us within earshot of the inn. For our kid chuckles today, I'll be talking about our youngest son, Brady. And when he was about a year and a half, 
um, it must have been a wild enough morning that I decided to take notes because I wrote a morning in the life of one-and-a-half-year-old Brady. He took the cushions off the couch, and then he climbed onto the back of the couch to reach a plant and dig out the dirt. And after that, he started to pull the cassette tapes out of a drawer, but I caught him quick on that one. And then he started to pull the books off a shelf, and I caught that one too. But I didn't catch it when he snuck gum out of my purse and hid in the closet to eat it, ignoring me when I called for him. After I threw it away, then he dug in the trash to find the used gum I'd tossed. And later he paddled in a plant water catcher, splashing water all over. And after that, um, he found his brother's stamp and put permanent blue marks on his sister's bedroom window ledge, which I'm not sure... Um, remembering how high that ledge was, just quite how he got up there. <laughs> um, but I did put the positive of the day, um, the, the fact that he had not hit his brother even one time that morning. So as you uh, parents know, uh, life with a toddler is never boring. A couple months later, Brady was talking, and one thing he liked to say was, righty peas. He would say that, and then he would crawl up in his high chair and demand paper and pencil so he could scribble. He really loved to do that. And his first long sentence was, Mama, more writing on wall. As you might guess, that my... Uh, reaction was probably not as positive as it would have been um, if he had had other words to that first long sentence. But he was proud of himself, or else, else tattling on himself, I'm not sure. So that's it for our Kid Chuckles today. And Steve, I think, has a joke for you. Indeed I do. This is supposedly a true story. And it comes from Mikey's Funnies, which is www.mikeysfunnies.com. And everything there is used by permission. Hospital regulations require a wheelchair for patients being discharged. However, while a student nurse, I found an elderly gentleman already dressed and sitting on the bed with a suitcase at his feet who insisted he didn't need my help to leave the hospital. After a discussion about rules being followed, he reluctantly let me wheel him into the elevator. On the way down, I asked him if his wife was meeting him. I don't know, he said with a smile on his face. She's still upstairs in the bathroom, changing out of her hospital gown. <laughs> <laughs> it's too funny. <laughs> well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.